Hello, and welcome back to Broadway Overanalyzed, a podcast that focuses not on the Broadway stage, but on the orchestra pit underneath. And every episode, we overanalyze a new Broadway score. We'll discuss the show's soundtrack, dissect the show's recurring themes, and dive into its style, structure, and influences. My name is Sam Riddle, and it is episode number six. Lydia, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back on the podcast with you, Sam. It's been a long time. Uh, Last time we were on, we said we're going to try to do one in 2022 uh, every other month. And the last episode was in February. It is late April now. So hopefully we can uh, get the podcast out uh, before the change in the month. Uh, I know it's been a little hard for us to coordinate a good time for us to get together to do this, but it's great to see you, Lid, and to talk about some Broadway. So uh, we're six episodes in. We have a pretty steady following on YouTube and Spotify. Very proud to say, mighty proud to say it. Uh, You'll get that joke later on. Uh, But we've never really done a good uh, introduction on ourselves, Lid. Uh, Why don't you just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, what you do for a living. Uh, I want to learn more about you. Well, thanks, Sam. I think you probably already know the answers to these things. But uh, yeah, so I am a graphic designer by trade. Um, I went to James Madison University to study graphic design, and now I live kind of up near D.C., uh, which is great because there is a lot of theater up here. Um, I've always been interested in theater. Uh, that was my minor in college. Um, I never, I took one acting class, which was terrible um, because I was very scared. Um, but I, I'm interested in it because I've always loved the music, um, watching shows, and kind of the behind the scenes, like scene, scenic design. Um stuff like that. Yeah. Tell us more about yourself, Sam. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, So I am uh, a graduate student at uh, Virginia Tech here in uh, Southwest Virginia. Uh, I study engineering, uh, basically materials engineering. Degrees a little has a different name, but uh, basically I study uh, materials engineering and I do uh, uh, have an interest in theater, I which which really grew from playing the piano. So I played the piano for a long time. Uh, really like to do that. I play a lot of show tunes. Kind of grew up playing show tunes. Um, I, I've been trying to sort of branch out and learn a little jazz and blues type stuff. I have a YouTube channel which you guys should go check out. It's just called Sam Riddle. There's a country music singer named Sam Riddle. Every time I look up Sam Riddle on YouTube, he's always the person who pops up. That is not me, uh, but uh, I post some piano covers there and our uh, podcast episodes are up on that channel. So uh, yeah, go ahead and check that out if you get a chance. I feel like we just outed ourselves by giving our uh, biographies and how uh, unqualified we are to uh, lead this podcast, but uh Yeah, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is enough about us. Let's get this show on the road. Today, we are uh, stepping back in time once again, all the way back to 1957, right in the middle of the golden age of Broadway. This one is a classic. And if you haven't heard of this show, well, then you got trouble, my friend. In episode six of Broadway Overanalyzed, we explore Meredith Wilson's 
the music man. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player, certainly mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with a cue in my hand are golden. Help you cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. Did you ever take and try to find an ironclad leaf? I wasn't as creative on my uh, on my intro this time. Yeah, only one pun. Yeah, sorry. So there's been a bit of a, a renewed interest in this show recently with the revival that's just come to Broadway this year, starring uh, Hugh Jackman and uh, Sutton Foster. Are you are you familiar with the like controversy there's been on Broadway over this show, Lid? I've heard that it hasn't gotten great reviews, but what is the controversy? Enlighten me. <laughs> I don't know if it's that big of a controversy because because mo most of my news is just through like. Uh, Twitter <laughs> but uh, but basically so they're they're in the Winter Garden Theater right now which was uh, where Beetlejuice was playing and Beetlejuice was like doing yeah Beetlejuice was doing like super well at the box office was uh, you know doing fine they weren't expecting to get moved but then like it was like a really quick sudden like Beetlejuice is out we're going to bring the music man in. It's got Hugh Jackman. It's got this like big name uh, starring in the main role. And then, so they knocked Beetlejuice out, but and now Beetlejuice has come back to Broadway in another theater. And so I think there are just like a lot of people who are mad that the music man is there. And it seems like it's been getting not completely negative reviews, but I guess maybe mixed reviews. And I think a lot of it is maybe because of people being mad that Beetlejuice is out. Yeah, I've heard that as well. I've also heard in connection with the revival of Music Man a lot of news about um, swings in theater shows because of like COVID, um, people being out because of COVID, the swings have really had to like step up to shows. So I've, that's the most news that I've heard um, from this Music Man recently. Interesting. So what is your uh, familiarity with the show lit? Have you actually seen it uh, live like on stage? I haven't seen it live and honestly I really couldn't find a bootleg for this show which is probably a good thing uh but was also kind of sad um my experience with the show is seeing the Matthew Broderick I think it's Disney is it Disney yeah it is okay yeah so seeing like the Matthew Broderick version of Music Man which I feel like gets a lot of hate because the original one is with Robert Preston um who starred in Music Man uh on Broadway so I think he's everyone's kind of like He's their Harold Hill, but Matthew Broderick is my Harold Hill, and I will stand by that movie. I love that movie so much. I think it's just, it's just so feel good, and I, I actually watched the Robert Preston one to prepare for this, and that one was great too. Like I was just, it's so happy. Like I was just kind of like smiling through the whole thing while I was watching it. Um, but yeah, I the Kristen Chen, like Kristen Chenoweth is in the one that that I'm familiar with too. I think it's great. Yeah, what's your what's your experience with Music Man? Well, having grown up uh, in the same house as you, Lid, uh, my my familiarity with it is the same. I've also never seen it live on stage, but yeah, but yeah, I think we grew we grew up seeing that it was it's a 2003 made for TV uh, film of the Music Man. It star it stars Matthew Broderick, but it is so good. It is really good. I I yeah. So so I think we kind of grew up with that, and we're like, you know, that's. The music man and then you come to find out most people think that matthew broderick is like a lame uh uh harold hill i just feel like 
Robert Preston and Matthew Broderick have different takes on who Harold Hill is. Like, to me, like, Robert Preston was a lot more, like, commanding. Um, and Matthew Broderick is a little bit more, like, maybe, like, manipulative. They just had, like, different takes on, like, what a salesman looks like, I think. I, d- I did, uh, as you did, watch the original film uh, a couple weeks ago in preparation for this. And I honestly, I do, and, and listening to the soundtrack, I can understand why people think that Robert Preston is is better. It's he's he's a little he's a little more of a like a powerful figure. There's and and yeah, definitely Matthew Broderick sort of takes almost more of a he's Matthew Broderick's approach is he seems a little more like sleazy, uh, and uh, and and that makes that makes him feel a little less likable, I guess, to me. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that for sure. But anyway, definitely a classic. It's a show that even non-theater people probably uh, know about. Um, it's uh, It won a lot of Tonys. We're going to go more into uh, the show in a little bit here. But let's start off with just a summary of uh, what, uh, the sh- what happens in the show, a little synopsis for the show. So, Lid, we did this last time. I'm going to... Uh, put a timer on you got a small amount of time to give me as detailed a synopsis of the music man as possible i think i gave you 45 seconds last time i'm only going to give you 40 seconds this time and it starts right now oh oh uh okay so uh it is about a man named harold hill who's a con man salesman and he goes to the small town named river city iowa and he's trying to sell boy bands and uh there's this librarian whose name coincidentally is marion which i feel like was probably intentional uh just for the rhyme and she kind of figures him out but eventually she sees like his relationship with her little brother winthrop who has a lisp and she's like oh like this guy is you know giving joy to my brother through this band eventually falls in love with him and then harold hill has to grapple with uh should i keep being a con man or should i stay here with marion and this town which i've kind of grown to fall in love with the end very good that was actually well i gave you one extra second 41 seconds i felt like i maybe needed to like try to write a rap like uh like uh, you've got trouble but i couldn't do it on on the fly <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to give a, a detailed synopsis of this show. Uh, not really because a lot happens in the show, but there's a lot of different characters in the show. Very uh, ca- character-heavy um, uh, show, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of, in a way, it's a bit of a weird story. Is Harold actually uh, a good guy? Does he actually feel bad about conning the people of River City? I always felt a little conflicted. Growing up watching the the TV uh, version, uh, what are your thoughts, Lid? I think it's kind of interesting because when we were doing our podcast about Wicked, I talked a lot about how um, it's kind of like this new fad with like Disney and stories to kind of like go from the perspective of like the antagonist or like the villain of the story. And I was like, oh, this is like this new thing people are doing. And then you come back to like Music Man, and you're like, oh, this is this is an old trope. Um, you, you're seeing this from the antagonist perspective, which is a super interesting perspective, but yeah, it's, it's kind of hard. You're like, he's likable cause he's like fun. Um, and he has a like cool personality, but in the end you're like, oh, he's kind of like a terrible person. And then you just have to kind of like flip a switch to like, like him at the end. 
Um, but I definitely think it's an interesting perspective for the story to come from. So I, uh, I'll, I'll share another bit of popular culture with you, I guess. Uh, I, I found a, uh, a, a tweet that kind of went viral throughout the Broadway community from this show critic who was, re- who was uh, reviewing the Music Man revival. And it went something like, it was talking about, it was like the Music Man, it was a really negative review saying like, Music Man is, is terrible and not just this production. Like, it's just a bad show. The whole show is just two hours of nothing. You have this song called Shapoopy, which is this made up word. There's no meaning behind it. What is this show even about? It's just about nothing. How would you respond to that, Lid? What is the Music Man about? Is there any lesson that we learn from this show, or is it just a bunch of vaudeville on stage? This is a really deep question, Sam. Uh, and I hadn't thought about it, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's interesting that it comes kind of in the golden age of musical theater, um, right around the time of like Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, and Rogers and Hammerstein kind of like changed musical theater to be more story based. Um, so before it was kind of just like songs on stage that were like loosely related. Um, so it is kind of like coming out of that tradition. So it's interesting that someone kind of has that opinion of it, that it just feels like vaudeville. Cause that's basically what Broadway was like a few years prior. Um, I guess like in the thirties, um, don't fact check me on that date. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think it does have a story. I think the music is very story driven. I think as well. And that's something I think we'll talk about later. The music does a great job of like developing characters and uh, building up the story. So I think it's kind of coming from this Roger and Hammerstein tradition. Um, I think it does have some songs we'll probably get into that are more just there for music and dance. Um, But I really like, I think it's a feel good story. Meredith Wilson, probably as we'll get into a little bit later is like from the Midwest. I think it's his tribute to the Midwest. And I think, our stereotypes of the Midwest are probably that it's a little maybe predictable, meandering. Um, I have great friends from the Midwest that will probably hate me for saying that. Uh, but I think that's kind of our stereotype. So I think this show is a great, like, tribute to the Midwest. I don't know. What do you think? What's your answer to that question? Well, I think it's kind of silly to say that a show is meaning nothing. I think every show has some sort of... Uh, lesson that it's trying to teach even if the lesson is even if it's uh trying to say nothing then it's saying something (laughs) um i i think i mean ultimately as far as like the i think it it definitely tells a story and it's a fun story and it's entertaining i think as far as like a lesson that it teaches it's uh um it's a story of redemption it's uh a guy who uh is a con man and he uh, is, is doing that. And he learns that that's, uh, that what he's doing is bad. And, uh, does he end up turning his life around at the end? It's kind of hard to tell. (laughs) We don't really know, but I think there are things that we can take away from it that are interesting. Uh, how about giving us a little, uh, introduction to the show? It's trip to Broadway. Tell us about this composer. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so Meredith Wilson is a super interesting person. I was, like, shocked by all the things he did when I was uh, doing research on him. 
Um, but he was born in Mason City, Iowa, and uh, we're also going to see some uh, correlations between his childhood and the show that he wrote. So born in Iowa, um, in high school, he was part of the marching band. Uh, he picked up the flute, um, which he kind of was a flute prodigy. He went on to study um, at the school that would eventually become Juilliard. Um, after Juilliard, he joined John Philip Sousa's band, uh, a composer who he kind of like name drops um, in the show in 76 Trombones. Um, and after that, he went on to score films for which he was nominated for multiple Academy Awards. Um, during World War II, he worked as a cast member on a radio program, uh, which was broadcast to soldiers overseas. He played with the Philharmonic Orchestra, he composed symphonies, he wrote songs performed by Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby covered by the Beatles. Um, perhaps the most famous of the songs that he wrote is It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas, along with its counterpart, uh, pine cones and holly berries, which I mentioned <laughs> because our family tries to sing both of those parts together every Thanksgiving That's funny. and fails miserably because um, it's fairly difficult to sing. Uh, but in the midst of doing all these other things, he also managed to compose a few Broadway musicals, including The Music Man, uh, which he worked on for eight years. He revised it 30 times and he wrote 40 songs, uh, I think 22 of which were cut. Um, he said that the Music Man is an Iowan's attempt to pay tribute to his home state, and he kind of played on themes that he had explored previously um, in a personal memoir that he wrote called And There I Stand with My Piccolo. Uh, he wrote the music, the lyrics, and the book for the Music Man. So just like continued to be like amazed by all the things that Meredith Wilson did in his life. Um, he tried to get The Music Man on as a television special, but couldn't find a producer for it anywhere. Um, so he eventually found a producer that brought it to Broadway. It opened in 1957, starring Robert Preston and Barbara Cook, and the Buffalo Bills as the Barbershop Quartet. Music Man took home the award for Best Musical over West Side Story, um, which we discussed in our West Side Story podcast. Um, and this musical has really stood the test of time. Um, like we said, it's been made into movies. It's been revived multiple times, including the most recent. Um, and currently playing revival uh, starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. We talked about it in um, uh, the West Side Story episode, but it did not win Best Score of a Musical because it did not win the Tony for Best Score of a Musical because in that time period, there was like five years where they did not give out a Tony Award for Best Score. So Music Man didn't win it. West Side Story didn't win it, which is so sad to me. Um, but yeah. And it also uh, became a very successful film in uh, 1962. Uh, and it did win the Oscar for Best uh, Musical Score from that uh, film. So, yeah. All right, well, thanks for that, uh, Lyd. Let's uh, turn now to look at the music of The Music Man. So, Lyd, I want you to sit back, close your eyes, and imagine that the year is 1957. Uh, earlier in the year, there was this show, you may have heard of it, it's called My Fair Lady. It won the Tony Award for Best Musical. 
Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein are the most popular musical theater composers uh, right now. Five years earlier in 1952, they won the Tony for The King and I, and in 1950, they won the Tony for South Pacific. And just two years from now, they're going to be bringing one of their most popular shows, The Sound of Music, to Broadway. So by 1957, the year that uh, you are now in, uh, with your eyes closed, we are well into the golden age of Broadway. And there is a pretty standard method for how these musicals are written. Uh, musicals at this point, you've kind of already alluded to this lid, but musicals at this point are basically plays with songs that are interspersed throughout them. And what I mean by this is that you have uh, some dialogue where some of the plot is moved forward, and then you have this really abrupt switch to a song. Uh, last month, I think it was last month, we saw, uh, Lid, you and I, uh, we saw our brothers were in their uh, high school's production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, and not the Broadway version, but the, you know, like original uh, Cinderella. And you could tell the show has sort of an older, uh, slower moving pace to it. Very clear cut acts that start with dialogue. They end with song. Uh, it was a great production. Shout out to our brothers, Isaiah and Joseph, who are in it and are probably listening to this episode. Uh, but this was true for most of Rogers and Hammerstein's musicals. Uh, I watched a, a high school show of The Sound of Music uh, a while ago. And it was kind of the same thing. It's, uh, you know, they talk, then there's a song, they talk again, there's a song. Just this simple pattern for how the show was structured. And I'm not trying to bash Rodgers and Hammerstein at all. Uh, obviously, this method of writing a show worked really well for them, and they were really the ones who kind of introduced storytelling onto the Broadway stage. I'm hoping we'll get around to analyzing one of their shows here on the podcast very soon. Uh, but anyway, basically, you have this book writer who writes the play part of the show, and then you had the composers who write the songs. Um, but okay, so that's the setting. You're still imagining you're in 1957. You're this big Rodgers and Hammerstein fan, as everyone else is. You know all the stuff that they've written so far. And then you come to see a show that's just uh, opened up on Broadway, and it's called The Music Man. Okay, you're sitting there in the dark. Uh, excited for the show to begin. The curtain opens, and then the show starts, and there's these men on stage who are talking, but they're not really talking. It's kind of talking, and it's kind of singing, and it also kind of sounds like the rhythm of a train. Uh, and this is your first introduction to something that is now a lot more common in musicals, but what really wasn't at the time. Uh, Meredith Wilson was attempting to create this atmosphere where it was a little hard to draw a line between what was singing and what was dialogue. So he wanted a musical where the two would sort of blend together. Um, it's like you're in this totally different world where any sound is actually uh, music on its own. And as I was researching this, I was thinking that could kind of lead to some interesting, but you know, I feel like we've had kind of a deep episode so far, Lid. but I feel like that can sort of lead to some interesting uh, philosophical questions. What exactly is music? Is the sound of a train running actually music? Is someone chanting words in kind of a rap kind of way? Is that actually music? I think Meredith Wilson would say that, yes, it is. Or at least in, uh, in this world that he's created, then yes, it is. 
Um, so whatever his philosophy was, it definitely worked for this show. His, his show, as we've already said, was extremely successful. It took the Tony Award over uh, West Side Story, which in hindsight kind of seems like a much more artsy and kind of uh, upper, maybe a more dignified show. Uh, but anyway, um, a lot of Wilson's ability to create this sort of magical musical world came through his use of diegetic music. We've talked about diegetic music a little bit before. Uh, Lid, do you want to give uh, a, a little definition to our listeners uh, about what diegetic music is? Yeah, so diegetic music would be music that's kind of already in the world of the show. So when you go to a musical and, you know, you hear people talking about it, it's so weird that they're just like bursting into song and dance. Um, but that's actually just for the audience. Um, the characters in the world of the show aren't, you know, where we are, where we're, you know, think it's weird to, to burst into song and dance um, because it's kind of just for the audience. Uh, but diegetic music would be music that um, the ad, the characters themselves in the world of the show would be hearing as well. Right. So, for example, you might have a show like The Sound of Music, where the Von Trapp kids are singing So Long Farewell to the Guest at the Captain's Party. And that's a song where all of the characters in the story are actually hearing them sing this song. So it's part of the story. Or a modern example could be like in a show like Hades Town, which we did last episode, where Orpheus sings his song to bring spring again. That's an example of a, a diegetic song. Uh, well, Wilson, I think, does something uh, similar, but uh, also slightly different. He sort of uses uh, diegetic sounds uh, and morphs those into his songs. Uh, so this could be like the sound of a train in the opening number. Cash for the merchandise. Cash for the button hooks. Cash for the cotton goods. Cash for the hard goods. Cash for the fancy goods. Cash for the soft goods. Cash for the noggins and the piggins and the frickins. Cash for the hogshead cask and jemmy jar. Cash for the crackers and the fiddles and the flypaper. Look, what do you talk? 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 What do you get it? Or it could be the sound of a piano lesson that's going on in the background of a scene. Excuse me for living, but I never read it. Neither has anyone else in this town. There you go again with that same old comment about the low mentality of River City people and taking it all to Or maybe it's just the sound of a crowd of gossiping women. Pick a little talk, little pick a little talk, little chip, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little talk, little pick a little talk, little chip, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little talk, little pick a little talk, little chip, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little talk, little pick a little talk, little chip, 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 chip. So this use of diegetic sounds in the show allows for a much smoother transition between the music and the dialogue that doesn't seem quite as abrupt as Rogers and Hammerstein, for example. Um, and the sounds that are going on on stage just sort of lead right into uh, singing. So he, he's taking advantage of these sort of diegetic sounds. Another way that Wilson does this is by a kind of rapping style of music. Um, I actually discovered that the proper term for this, uh, instead of calling it rap, is maybe to call it a patter song, uh, P-A-T-T-E-R, patter song. Um, and a lot of people uh, like to say that 
Lin-Manuel, you know, kind of introduced this patter song idea to musical theater with In the Heights and Hamilton. Really, one of the first people to do this was Meredith Wilson uh, in The Music Man. We already heard that uh, a little bit in that opening number that I played. Uh, we hear it in a lot of the songs that Professor Harold Hill sings. Actually, most of his singing in this is just him doing this little rapping. This, I think, is one of the reasons that the show is so popular for high schools to put on, because not only is it uh, a rare show with a leading male character, uh, but he doesn't even really have to sing. <laughs> he just sort of has to chant through things, which is nice for uh, high school aged kids whose uh, voices are still changing. Um, so let's listen to probably the most obvious example of this type of patter song in uh, You Got Trouble. But just as I say, it takes judgment, brains, and maturity to score in a balk line game. I say that any boo can take and shove a ball in a pocket. And I call that sloth. The first big step on the road to the depths of degrade. I say first, medicinal wine from a teaspoon, then beer from a bottle. And the next thing you know, your son is playing for me. So there's, there's kind of a, a tongue twister element to this. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, fun lyrics that you can put in using this that I'm sure we're gonna get into later when we go through the soundtrack, but there's really no rhyming or limited rhyming, really no melody, just someone kind of talking in an especially rhythmic way. And this is something that has become huge in modern theater. We see it obviously very clearly uh, in Lin-Manuel Miranda's musicals. We saw it with Stephen Sondheim. We've actually talked about it on this podcast before. Um, so this show, uh, the Music Man has had a huge influence on the theater world, and it's uh, a really cool way to tell a story. So those two things, diegetic sounds, um, I guess we'll call it, I'm sort of coming up with that term on my own, but I'll call it diegetic sounds. And then this rap style of singing or patter uh, singing uh, are the two things that I think really make this score stand out. Uh, there is a lot of diversity in the Music Man score, and that's one of the reasons I think that it's so fun to listen to. Uh, so we do get some kind of Rodgers and Hammerstein-esque songs, very pretty melodic songs, mostly sung by Marion, songs like Good Night, My Someone, and My White Night. Um, so it's not completely devoid of melody. It's just a very quirky score. You never really uh, know what you're going to get with every uh, different song. There's, of course, a big marching band element. You have a barbershop quartet. There's a lot of counterpoint in this score, uh, which we're going to talk about when we go through the soundtrack, but that's just when you've got two melodies, uh, one on top of the other, uh, going on at the same time. So that is a very brief introduction uh, to this score and what I think makes it really stand out from other shows. And I think we're going to have a lot to dig into when we look at the uh, cash recording uh, song for song. Uh, real quick before we get into that, though, let's talk about the orchestra briefly. I always like to see what kind of instruments are in the orchestra. Um, and as you might imagine for a show like this about a marching band, there is a big orchestra, a lot of brass instruments. Um, I think this show is probably one of the biggest orchestras that we've seen on this podcast so far. According to the MTI licensing for this show, the orchestra contains 17 musicians, many of whom are playing multiple instruments. 
we have uh, bass, cello, violins, a lot of woodwinds, actually, flute, multiple clarinets, and English horn, oboes, the piccolo, the piccolo, and of course, a bassoon having its big fat say. And of course, we have a ton of brass, uh, not quite 76 trombones, but quite a few. Uh, So a really big orchestra, just a really fun show. All right, well, let's dive into uh, the soundtrack and analyze this score uh, song by song. There are, of course, multiple recordings of the Music Man score. We will be listening to the original Broadway cast recording. It has Robert Preston in the in the title role of the Music Man. Um, it's one of the shorter soundtracks we've done in a few episodes after looking at In the Heights and at Hadestown. There are only 18 tracks. Uh, It's not very well balanced. There's 12 uh, tracks in Act 1 and only 6 tracks in Act 2. But uh, let's get into it. Cash for the merchandise. Cash for the button hooks. Cash for the cotton goods. Cash for the hard goods. Cash for the fancy goods. Cash for the soft goods. Cash for the noggins and the piggins and the frickins. Cash for the so track number one is a uh, song called Rock Island. This is the opening number to the show. Uh, and as I've already uh, said already, but this opens with a bunch of uh, just men on stage doing this patter song. They are traveling salesmen on a train discussing whether or not the new technology in the early 20th century is interfering with their selling methods. Should have mentioned earlier, but the show is set in 1912, I believe. Um So uh, they're talking about this new technology, and they eventually uh, begin talking about an infamous con man whose name is Harold Hill and who dirties their own reputations whenever they come into a town after him. Uh, Any idea why this song is called Rock Island Lid? I did some research, and I was never able to figure it out. Oh, yeah, I have no idea. And I didn't do any research because I didn't even question it. So I don't know why. Um, I have no idea. So this is one of the uh, patter songs that we mentioned earlier. It is all uh, rhythmic chanting, no rhyming, no melody really at all. Um, One of the most unique things uh, I think about this song is there is no musical accompaniment at all. There are no sounds other than... uh, So so I guess this track does... does start with a very short overture, uh, but then it is completely a cappella after that, something that uh, would have been very unique on the Broadway stage at the time, still is actually. Uh, but the chanting of the salesman follows the rhythm of the train, accelerating as the train accelerates, slowing down as the train comes to a stop, and there are all, all of these train-like sounds cash for the merchandise and so on i think i cut you off lid you were gonna say something yeah um i feel like it's kind of what you were saying before about diegetic sounds um he's always just using like the surrounding area and the sounds to be kind of like the music in the background um instead of having kind of any kind of orchestration which is super interesting right and using the uh songs themselves to be that sound uh which is really cool 
Um, there are uh, five salesmen uh, who are singing this song. According to the score, it lists five salesmen. And then there's also uh, Charlie the Anvil salesman um, who will uh, return later on in the show. Uh, but a lot of these salesmen have their own kind of recurring uh, lines uh, in this song. So it's like uh, in the score, it lists salesman number four is though is like he always says, what do you talk? Uh, and then Charlie has this, but you got to know the territory line that he always says. So it's kind of fun to to look through the score and see who's saying which parts. And everyone's kind of coming up with the same stuff all the time. It's a fun song. It's really funny, too, because they're so concerned with, like, Harold Hill knowing his line or, like, not having a line. And all the salesmen, like, they have their line. They have, it's, I think something this musical does so well, and I think we'll probably get into it later, too, is that Meredith Wilson has matched each type of character, what they do and what their personality is, with a musical style. So each character has their own musical style. And the salesmen of the story are fast talking they never let any room for air anytime that one salesman stops another one starts so it's kind of like this quick topic talking uh rap style is reserved solely for the salesman so whenever you hear this kind of like rap talking you know okay this is a salesman talking um and this musical style kind of tells you a lot about what kind of people they are what their job is um what their perspective is on their job um so i think Meredith Wilson just uses different musical styles so well to already give us information. This is the opening number, and we already have so much inf information just with the musical style that they're singing in. I can't remember if I said it before, but I'll say it again. The, the, the characters in this show are so good, <laughs> and Wilson did a, did a great job kind of creating all of these different characters, which, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not a an insanely complicated plot so he has some time to develop these characters but even these side characters have and these little quirks about them that make you feel like you you know a little bit uh, more about them and he gives them all names um and even in this opening number most of these salesmen we're not gonna uh see uh later on in the show except for charlie uh but even they in this short you know three minute song have a, a little bit of a personality to them. And it's a great um, intro into Harold Hill as a character as well, um, because in this opening number, it's just them talking about him, and they say his name like 10 times in a row. I think I counted it. It's like 10 or more times where they're just saying, Hill, 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 Hill. Um, so it's just a great way to I get just like create interest. You're like, who is this Hill? Because we just said his name 10 times in a row. Um, so it's just, it's a great, it's just a great opening number. It's a great intro to his character. Um, some musicals will have uh, something called a dramaturg as part of their creative team. And what a dramaturg does is they just basically uh, are a literary consultant for the show, or maybe not a, a literary consultant, but a, a cultural consultant for the show. Um, I remember uh, when I was I played a, a when I was playing piano for a show in school, there was a dramaturg who uh, would come, and everyone kind of hated him because he would just sort of stand. He would just sort of like he would just sort of sit uh, and watch us rehearse, 
and he didn't really contribute a ton, <laughs> but he everyone was kind of like, why is he here? And they were like, he's the dramaturg. He's here for a reason. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think some shows they're more important than others. Um, but this is, this show really is a dramaturg's dream. There are so many references to stuff that was that I guess terms that would have been used in 1912 that I don't think even people in the 1950s would understand what they uh, were talking about. And, and now we're kind of like, what is what the heck is a is a noggin and a piggin and a friggin? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's there's all these all these different terms that it, it's it's fun. You can get really deep into looking up different terms and saying, what does this, what does this mean? What was Wilson trying to say here? And I feel like he probably had to do a lot of kind of background research to figure out what these different things were to kind of get us into the atmosphere of the show. I think it's really interesting. I read a little bit. So Meredith Wilson wrote a memoir um, about kind of his early career and his childhood. And then he wrote another book about kind of the tr how hard it was to get Music Man to Broadway um, and it was called, uh, but he doesn't know the territory actually. Um, but I read kind of like the intro on like Google reads. Um, and it was just really interesting to see like Meredith Wilson's interest in words, kind of like what you're saying, um, is that he, in the intro he talked about when he was a kid, he would just like repeat words over and over again. And like, he talked about how when you repeat them, they don't really sound like words anymore. They just, you just are getting like the sound of them. Um, and I thought that was, he kind of wrote the book like he wrote Rock Island, where he would just kind of like randomly like repeat a word he thought was interesting in the intro. So I think you see like his interest in words and the way sounds, I don't know, have an impact um, in this first song as well. All right, let's move on to track number two, which is a song called Iowa Stubborn. Uh, so basically what's happened here is Harold Hill has gotten off the train at a place called River City, Iowa, which is going to be the setting for the rest of our show. And this song introduces us to the people of the town. It is our first ensemble song, much more melodic than the previous song. We actually get some accompaniment um, it sort of sounds uh, a bit more than uh, a, bit, a bit more uh, what we might be used to uh, in musical theater. There's kind of a lot of high operatic sounding voices, uh, which I think is kind of done in a bit of an ironic way since the lyrics are actually so silly and it's also very staccato at uh, points. Um, what you got for me, Lid? Yeah, I think the uh, beginning of this song uh, really reminds me of like, I mean, like you were saying, it's more like melodic and maybe like orchestral. It really reminds me of like a classic like Rodgers and Hammerstein, especially like Oklahoma. I really thought of like Oklahoma listening to this. I feel like the big orchestral opening and then it even starts with like, oh, <laughs> there's nothing halfway. Whereas Oklahoma is, oh, Oklahoma. And it's funny because both of those are kind of like a Midwest. I don't know. They have that feel for them somehow. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of what the, what the beginning reminds me of. Um, and then it, it starts out melodic. It's like, oh, there's nothing halfway about the highway to treat you, which sounds very nice. And, uh, even though the lyrics sound nice, the melody sounds nice. And then it like changes and gets super choppy. And it's like, when we treat you, which we may not do at all. Um, so it, it kind of like 
the, t- the tone changes like halfway through the line. You're like, oh, I thought they were nice, but actually they're not as nice as I thought. So I think that's that's pretty genius, the way the scene changes with the lyrics. That's cool. It reminds me a lot of the way that Mayor Shin talks. He's like trying to be all pompous and civilized, but then he just kind of makes a fool out of himself by not being able to do that. Uh, it's interesting too, because uh, the way that they sing the last choppy line he puts like an accent on every single word. It's like, treat you when we treat you, which we may not do at all. And like every single word is like accented. So it's like really packing a punch at you, um, which I think is it. Like I said before, it's kind of like every character has a musical style and a character style that kind of like tells you their personality. Um, so again, this is like the townspeople sound. Um, and so this musical style is kind of giving us a hint that these people are stubborn they're a little bit predictable and plotting um so i think that's cool uh there is uh, a rhythm in this at least in the accompaniment for this song that i wanted to talk about that we're going to see a lot in this score uh and we've talked about it before but it's something called an umpa rhythm which is just this uh four four rhythm uh so if, if you had a, a four four time signature uh, basically all you're going to do in this umpa rhythm is you're going to go low, high, low, high, low, high over and over again. So the um is kind of like your low beat and the pa is the high uh, beat. So it's called an umpa rhythm. It's a pattern that is really common in musical theater um, uh, but uh, and, and is really common now in modern theater, but I think was even more common in sort of the older Broadway style. Um, so let me just play... This is what the uh, accompaniment for um, Iowa Stubborn sounds like on the piano, and you can listen for that uh, umpa rhythm. So it's called an umpa rhythm low high low high over and over again and this rhythm is literally all over the place in the music man score i'm probably going to be pointing it out a lot as we go through the soundtrack and i think that one of the reasons that it's so popular is because it's fairly easy to write songs with it has kind of this fullness to it but it's really just playing chords so you can easily match whatever melody you want to and it has this sort of, you know, march sound to it, but you can uh, put different uh, rhythms on top of it. And it is especially useful for doubling melodies uh, or, or doing something like counterpoint, which is something I mentioned before. And we're going to get into uh, in a little bit here. So that's a little introduction to the umpa rhythm. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting that you say that it's kind of like easy to write things over. Um, because I feel like that's something that Marion kind of, like, doesn't like about the town that she lives in, is that, um, the townspeople are, like, not very nuanced or cultured or maybe, like, complex. Um, I think Marion kind of sees them as, like, a little bit simple-minded at times. Um, so it's interesting that kind of the musical style reflects maybe Marion's idea of, of who the people are, and that's kind of related to the audience as well. Right. That brings us to track three, which is a song called You Got Trouble. And this is Harold Hill's first uh, solo song. 
He tries to stir up a little bit of controversy in the town over the newly installed pool table in order for the uh, people of River City to realize that they need a boys band, which he is going to be providing for them. Um, this is another patter song, uh, three tracks in, and we already have two patter songs. So uh, let's give the beginning of You Got Trouble a little listen here. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player, certainly mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with a cue in my hand are golden. Help you cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. Did you ever take and try to find an ironclad lead for yourself from a three-rail billiard shot? But just as I It's say, another uh, tongue-twister type song, no rhyming, uh, very little melody. The accompaniment to the song is pretty erratic sometimes there is that oompa rhythm for a couple measures sometimes there's no accompaniment for a while and then there's the sudden chord that comes in so it's really all over the place it's really chaotic and frantic which i think is probably exactly uh, what wilson was going for in this song the patter um i guess style that it uses is a throwback to the first song which it's just great storytelling because it's we've already established that this is the salesman's sound. So then when we hear it again, we know, okay, he's giving his pitch. Um, so it's just a great way to, I guess, get into who Harold Hill is a character and kind of give his introduction song. Um, Stephen Sondheim, who, as we talked about in our West Side Story podcast, was writing lyrics for West Side Story the same year uh, The Music Man came out, uh, said of this song that it's, a dazzling piece in service of telling a story. Um, so he's just really setting up Harold Hill's character by using the same uh, musical style that he set up in the beginning. There's a lot uh, more of the uh, dramaturgy, dramaturgy, I guess that's how you pronounce it, uh, that we could go into in this song. He talks about bevos. He talks about cubebs. He talks about tailor-maids. Um, so there's a lot of like, <laughs> a lot of cool things, things that we could and drag it all about how they're gonna cover up a telltale <laughs> Do you have uh, you got trouble memorized, Lid? Can you do it? I have I have a lot of it memorized, to be honest. I feel like that's you have to. It's just a it's a rite of passage. I don't think I could get very far in it. <laughs> uh did you have anything else, Lid? Uh yeah. So the crowd also is kind of like interjecting um, in between Harold's pitch. Um, and I think it's interesting. We kind of get uh, the, the townspeople style again with that. And they're all singing together um, kind of with one voice. Um, and I think it's interesting that they kind of just like repeat exactly what Harold Hill says. Um, so another thing we're learning about the townspeople is that they're kind of easily manipulated um, and they kind of like, can't really follow his reasoning very well. They're kind of just like spitting back um, things that he says. And I just, the lyrics are so funny. It's just like such a stupid argument that <laughs> trouble starts with T and that rhymes with P and that stands for fool. <laughs> it's just like so funny. It's hilarious. It's great writing, I think. Uh, I will say, uh, poor Robert Preston, the, the ending to this song on the original Broadway cast recording is pretty rough. <laughs> he has a tough time singing. It sounds especially worse when it's backed by this ensemble that can sing. 
Um, the score does call for a sort of screamed note, so it, it's not really a, a written note, but I kind of wish they had just said, you know, try to try to hit a note just at least for the end. But let's listen to the to the very end of You Got Trouble. Oh, we got trouble. We're in terrible, terrible trouble. That game with the 15 numbered balls is a devil's tool. Devil's tool. Oh, yes, we got trouble, trouble, trouble. Oh, yes, we got trouble. Hey, we got big, big trouble. With a T. Got a rhyme with P. And that stands for pool. We'll move on to track number four, which is called Piano Lesson. This song introduces us to Marion Peru, uh, who is Harold Hill's love interest. She is a uh, librarian and doubles as a piano teacher. And in this song, she argues with her mother, uh, Mrs. Peru, while simultaneously teaching her student Amaryllis. I should mention there's some funky names <laughs> in this sh uh, show. Miss Peru, Amaryllis, Winthrop, Eulalie, uh, Zanita. I'm trying to... Eulalie technician. There's, there's so many uh, interesting names. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, this song is another example of the use of uh, diegetic sounds in the score. Um, Amaryllis is going through her piano piece in the background of this song and then Marion and Mrs. Peru sort of use that as the accompaniment to their singing. So they sort of just uh, flow into singing with the uh, piano as a background for them. Uh, this is how the piano accompaniment starts off. So Amaryllis is just going through uh, different uh, exercises on the piano, and then when she switches keys on the piano, so do Marion and Mrs. Peru. So this is a really uh, easy little piece on the piano to switch to a different key, uh, like uh, she might do here. genius way to move from dialogue to music um this kind of like diegetic strategy that we're talking about here i think that's like, like how you know a musical is well written when it's just so seamless from dialogue to music and i i know like when i'm watching shows and this happens i just get like so excited because you get like excited that the next time like a song comes up and when it's seamless like that it's just it's just really satisfying um to hear and then also the fact that, like you're saying, it, it changes keys. It kind of, like, escalates the drama and the tension um, each time they respond to each other in this this argument they're having. Eventually, they do go into that oompa rhythm. Um, so the, the piano, in the orchestration, the piano kind of drops out and the orchestra fills in, uh, sort of playing what the piano was playing, but also adding this oompa rhythm. Uh, which sounds pretty cool and kind of makes the song even more dramatic. And uh, yeah, like you said, makes it sort of flow in uh, really well. Very conversational type of singing, which uh, we're, we're sort of seeing here is exactly what uh, Wilson uh, does best. Yeah, the conversational 
part of it too is interesting because just in talking about kind of Sondheim writing at the same time, that's kind of what Sondheim uh, is a master of. Um, so I think it's interesting that Sondheim kind of really looks up to Wilson and maybe we see some kind of influences of his work in Sondheim. I think we definitely do um, the way Meredith Wilson kind of brought this more like rap-like um, conversational lyrics to the stage. Um, lyrically, I just think it's like hilarious. I don't think this has anything to do with score analysis, but I just always laugh when um, Marion's like, you have a, tells her mom, she's like, you have a habit of like changing the subject. And her mom is like, I wasn't changing the subject. I was talking about the stranger. And Marion's like, what stranger? <laughs> and she just like changes the subject when she's talking about her changing the subject. And then she's like, he, she, he may be your very last chance. It's just like, the lyrics are genius. It's just, I laugh every time this song comes on. I, lo- I love the ending of this song. How does it go? Uh, oh, I forget it. Eh, never mind. <laughs> just play it. Yeah, yeah, I'll play it. Mama, do you think I'd allow a common masher? Now, really, Mama, I have my standards where men are concerned, and I have no intention. I know all about your standards, and if you don't mind my saying so, there's not a man alive who could hope to measure up to that blender, Paul Bunyan, St. Pat, and Noah Webster. You've concocted for your sins out of your Irish imagination. Your eye was stubborn to send your library full of books. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on to uh, track number five, <clears throat> which is called uh, "Good Night, My Someone." Uh, this is kind of like uh, Marion's "I Want" song. It's probably the most melodic, ballady, sort of classical musical theater sounding song that we've had so far in the show. Uh, it sort of begins in the same way that Piano Lesson does, again with this diegetic sound of Amaryllis playing the piano. Uh, that's used for the accompaniment. Um, This is what the beginning of that piano sounds like. Lid, you were one of the first people to share with me uh, the similarities between this song and 76 trombones. Do you? I'll, I'll allow you to get into that if you'd like to talk about it. Yeah, this was wild when I saw this because I have been listening to this song since I was little and didn't realize that they're pretty much exactly the same tune. It's uh, just kind of they're treated differently kind of rhythmically and orchestrally. Good Night, My Someone and 76 trombones. And I actually have um, a clip from Meredith Wilson recorded a record of him and his wife singing the songs from the music man. And um, so I'll kind of let him explain it. Back to Harold Hill again, and it's uh, still the night of the 4th of July. Happens to be raining, so the evening celebration takes place in the high school gymnasium. And this is where the professor really gets his chance to tell the River City Zians how glorious and how glamorous and how shining it would be to have a band made up of their own kids parading down the main street in uniform. Johnny, Willie, Teddy, Fred, with the cymbals crashing and the trumpets blaring. Ta-da! Well, the song that Professor Hill uses to illustrate uh, such a uh, glittering parade stems from the same melody, by the way, that has just issued forth in the preceding scene from our music teacher. I uh, must admit I did that on purpose to suggest that these two people have possibly more in common than meets the eye. Good night, my someone, good night, my love. 
76 trombones led the big parade with 110 cornets close at hand. They were followed by rows and rows of the finest virtuos goes the cream of every famous band. 76 trombones played the counterpoint while 110 cornets played the air. Then I modestly took my place as the one and only bass and I owned up and down the square. I think that's pretty cool. It's uh, Meredith Wilson singing and kind of talking about the fact that it's the same tune, but he also explains why. Um, and he says, it's maybe to suggest that they have more in common than meets the eye. <laughs> so you yeah, you kind of see the similarities between this song and 76 trombones. That's awesome. Where'd you find that clip? Um, I just, when I was doing research, it, um, just came up on his page that he had done a record of him kind of singing through the songs. And I thought it might have kind of more information on how he wrote them. It was just kind of them singing through, but that part, I thought that part was cool. Hmm. Is it on YouTube? Yeah, it's on YouTube. I'll send it to you. Cool. And we'll, uh, we'll add a link to that in the, uh, in the show description once we get this thing uploaded for sure. Uh, I'll, I'll say the, um, uh, I guess, uh, thing that makes it different musically, um, is even though these are the same, uh, tunes, uh, they're set to different rhythms. So good night. My someone is written, uh, in a waltz, um, three, four times. There's a one, two, three, one, two, three. And then 76 trombones, is uh set in four four so it's more of a march one two three four one two three four um so there's kind of the difference there but they're both singing in the same tune and as meredith wilson has just pointed out to us uh maybe uh marion and harold are a little more uh, similar than uh we may think it's interesting though uh like you said before just how kind of different this song sounds from from things we've heard before um again every character has a musical style and this is marion's musical style and we'll see it kind of pop up again um in my white knight and even um will i ever tell you later on um so her musical style is so different from the fast talking salesman and kind of the plodding predictable meandering townspeople um this song kind of sets marion apart she's she's different from the townspeople um, I think it's a great it's a great intro to her character. You said it was kind of an I want song, and I was wondering that kind of too. I think it is probably her I want song, um, but I think it's so great after the last song because in the last song, her mom. I feel like this is I don't know. It's maybe a little bit relatable to her mom is like you need a man like you're like you. Why don't you like you know uh, respond to this gentleman's advances or whatever? And she's like. I don't like anybody here. I don't need you telling me that. Like, stop talking to me like this. And then in, th in this song, we see, like, more of her, like, vulnerability. And she's, like, you know, actually, like, kind of lonely and, like, wants someone. And, like, but she doesn't, she's not going to, like, admit that to her mom. But, like, we as the audience kind of, like, get to see that side of her. I remember, like, watching the Kristen Chenoweth uh, one. This is always kind of, like, a favorite part of the movie for me. Because I feel like it's just such a window into her character that is... I don't know, just so, like, revealing. Wow, that's good, Lid. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, feel like we're, I feel like we're getting so deep on this episode. It's a good musical, what can I say? <laughs>
Well, we've already talked about it a little bit, uh, and it is the sixth track. It's called 76 Trombones. Uh, maybe one of the most well-known songs from uh, the show. And in this song, uh, which we've kind of already heard the tune for in Good Night, My Someone, uh, Harold Hill pitches the idea of a boys band to the people of River City for the first time as they have congregated in the uh, gymnasium. Um, this track begins with a uh, reprise of You Got Trouble. Um, actually, in the score, it's divided into two separate songs that are called You Got Trouble Reprise, and then it goes into uh, 76 Trombones. Uh, we talked about it just a second ago, but uh, instead of the waltz that we just heard in Goodnight My Someone, we're now in a marching rhythm. Uh, the oompa is back. Uh, listen for it in that uh, bass, and we'll uh, give this song a little bit of a listen uh, right now. 76 trombones led the big parade With 110 cornets close at hand They were followed by rows and rows Of the finest virtuosos The cream of every famous band 76 trombones caught the morning sun With 110 cornets right behind There were more than a thousand reeds Springing up like weeds There were horns there's a lot of, uh, I know I don't talk a lot about the, um, uh, lyrics. I normally stick to talking about the music, but I did, I do notice in this song, there is a lot of, a lot of fun rhyming, uh, a lot of, uh, internal rhyming, which I don't think we've seen a ton of yet in this score, but I just picked out like a couple of lines where you see this, uh, 76 trombones caught the morning sun with 110 cornets right behind. There were more than a thousand reeds springing up like weeds. There were horns of every shape and kind. Or there were 50 mounted cannon in the battery, thundering, thundering louder than before. Clarinets of every size and trumpeters who'd improvise a full octave higher than the score. It just, it rolls off the tongue uh, so well. Uh, really neat. This is also like a classic. I feel like you have to have like a a number that's just for like dance in a musical. Um, so this kind of also allows for there to be kind of like a dance number, maybe like halfway through act one. Um, so it's, that's, it kind of serves a purpose there as well. The seventh track is a song that is called Sincere. And this is our first song featuring uh, the iconic... Music Man Barbershop Quartet. It consists of the members of the River City School Board. The way that it works out in the show is there are these four guys who are on the school board. They're constantly bickering with one another at the beginning of the show. But Professor, Her Professor Harold Hill kind of turns them into a barbershop quartet without them realizing it in order to distract them from the task that the mayor has given them of investigating Professor Hill's credentials as a music teacher. Uh, it's one of the kind of running gags in the show that every time they approach Hill, he tricks them into singing some song and they get distracted and he escapes. It's a, it's a funny little uh, gag. Um, just some basic info about what a barbershop quartet is. Uh, there are four parts, obviously, since it's a, a quartet. 
Um, if you uh, are familiar singing uh, like uh, church hymns, uh, you'll know that there are four parts that are involved with that, a soprano, an alto, a tenor, and a bass. Um, with a uh, barbershop quartet, uh, there's uh, similar four parts. You have uh, a lead part who carries the melody. You have a tenor who sings harmony above the lead. That's the guy who's singing really, really high um, in all of these songs. There's a baritone who sings harmony that's really at the same register as the lead. Sometimes it goes above it, sometimes it goes below. And then you have uh, a bass. So it's similar sort of like to, to choir music. Um, but in, in really good barbershop quartets, the harmony is is really close. So you'll have uh, this uh, singing where they're just half notes away from each other, which is really hard to do. And then, uh, you know, just before uh, the song ends, the chord will finally uh, get resolved. Why don't we listen to a little bit of this song so we get a little feel for what uh, these barbershop quartet songs and the score are like. How can there be any sin in sin, sin? Where is the good in goodbye? He gets so high on that. I, I feel like uh, most other. Uh, I, I feel like in like the TV version that we grew up watching, the tenor will normally go into falsetto. I'm always amazed by, by that guy. He he, he just gets so up there. I think the song is like just again another great example of Wilson using a musical style combined with character to show character development. Um, because it's these four guys that don't get along. And so their musical style to make them get along is they're all harmonizing together. So it's just, it's just the musical style is telling the story. Um, and each character kind of has a different one. So what do you, what a unique thing to have in a broad, what other Broadway show has a barbershop quartet, but it works so well. <laughs> yeah. And it's cool. Cause the original people were like an actual, barbershop quartet so again it kind of like plays into the vaudeville like you come to see music man but also you're coming to see like this quartet that you might see at their like own show yeah the the quartet that uh that starred in the original broadway production and also were in the movie were the buffalo bills they actually won the 1950 barbershop harmony society quartet championship which happens annually to this very day, I found out. And that's how Meredith Wilson discovered them. So they won that competition and he asked them to uh, sing on Broadway for him. <laughs> I didn't even know that was such a thing. <laughs> the eighth track we're moving along here is called uh, The Sadder But Wiser Girl. This is kind of a, a random song that Hill sings uh, to Marcellus about uh, what he is uh, kind of looking for in a woman, I guess. And it's kind of a, a funny song. It's, it's really short. Um, this is actually one of the songs that I think the, the television version that we grew up with led, uh, did better than the film or the original Broadway cast. 
it actually they let Marcellus and there's also this like innkeeper of the place where Hill is staying in River City who sing along with them and the, the orchestrations are kind of a little more fun there's some harmony and some jazzy piano to it that I I find uh, entertaining yeah so it's kind of along with Harold Hill's musical style again we're back to kind of quick rhyming a little bit of like spoken word um, but added into this song, there's kind of like a jazzy element as well, which makes it a little bit sleazy. Like this is a pretty sleazy song and kind of demeaning. Um, and I think it just kind of further emphasizes his con man uh, ways as well. Okay, so I want to take this moment to talk a little bit about counterpoint. Uh, this is something that is really big in... The Music Man counterpoint is when you have two musical lines that are completely different melodically and rhythmically, but they're connected harmonically uh, so that you can have the two playing over each other and it will still sound good. So basically you could have two different melodies uh, that have the same chord progressions and you could sing them one on top of the other uh, and they would sound good. Um, so we saw an example of this already in Good Night, My Someone, uh, not with two different singing lines, but with two different melodies. Uh, one line was that piano, and then the other one was uh, Marion's uh, singing melody. So why don't we go ahead and give that a listen again? And uh, this is an example of counterpoint. see a lot uh, more examples of counterpoint coming up uh it's going to come up a lot with the barbershop quartet uh let's listen to a snippet of that uh this is much later in the show but just for us to get an idea of what counterpoint is let's listen to light a rose slash will i ever tell you So this use of counterpoint is actually super common in musical theater. Uh, sometimes it can get really involved. Good example of this is like in One Day More from Les Mis, where there are, I think, six different lines going on at the same time. So six different melodies. You can think of Nonstop from Hamilton. It really is all over the place. Uh, but uh, Wilson uses it a lot, especially... Uh, emphasizing that umpa rhythm in order to easily play multiple melodies and rhythms over a steady march uh, beat. Um, so why am I talking about counterpoint right now as we're uh, on the eighth track, Sadder But Wiser Girl? This is one of the coolest things that I found out while researching this score. I don't know if you've 
if you know about the sled. Um, but there are some instances of counterpoint in the score uh, that are not even used uh, in the show. Do you know what I'm about to talk about? It's connected to My White Knight somehow, but right? Yeah. Um, so apparently at one point, Wilson wanted to have Sadder But Wiser Girl sung in unison with My White Knight, which is Marion's big song at the end of Act One. We haven't heard it yet, but we will in a moment. Um, this was eventually cut from the musical, uh, but I did find a track where the uh, Cincinnati Pops Orchestra performed uh, this song with My White Knight played over Sadder But Wiser Girl. It's about a minute long, but I'm going to play this whole track, and it is really cool. No wide-eyed eager, wholesome, innocent female. No, sir. That kind of girl spins webs. No spider ever this boy. I prefer to take a chance on a more adult romance. No do young miss who keeps resisting all the time. She keeps insisting. No wide-eyed, wholesome, innocent female. No, sir. Why, she's the fisherman. I'm the fish. Don't you see that? I flinch, I shine When the last with the delicate air goes by I smile and I grin When the gal with a touch of sin walks in I hope and I pray For Hester to win just one more A The sad great because i mean they're both songs about what they what these two characters want in the person that they want to be with um and marion's is like kind of idealized and harold's is kind of like demeaning to women um in a way so that's really yeah that's interesting yeah i i thought it was so cool and i had i had that same thing written written in my notes it's sort of Similar songs, both sort of uh, singing about what they're kind of looking for. Uh, I think Marion's is probably a little more innocent than Harold's, but yeah, it is. It is really cool how those two songs go together, and I would never have known that uh, just from listening uh, to those two songs separately. And they kind of like end up with the opposite of what they want too. Which is funny. All right, well, let's move on to uh, the ninth track. And speaking of counterpoint, we're going to hear it here. Uh, we're going to have sort of two songs that are sung over one another. The first one is Pick a Little, Talk a Little. Uh, and the second one is Good Night, Ladies. In this song, Harold Hill gets the scoop on Marion the Librarian from the gossiping women of River City. We kind of get our first little introduction to them. Uh, while they are singing, he is interrupted by the school board members, uh, but per usual, he distracts them by singing Good Night, Ladies to the Women. Uh, so in this song, we kind of have two examples of some common musical themes that are used throughout the show. First of all, we get the diegetic sounds of the gossiping women. That's kind of uh, interpreted by them singing, pick a little, talk a little, cheap, cheap, cheap. Um, and then secondly, we get that example of counterpoint. 
as the barbershop quartet sings the melody of Good Night Ladies over the women's Pick a Little, Talk a Little melody. Uh, do you have anything for the song, Lydia? So uh, Meredith Wilson didn't actually write Good Night Ladies. That was kind of an already established song. It actually, I think I read that it kind of got its start in like minstrel shows. So it's kind of an unfortunate uh, background for the song. Um, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so the song was kind of already established. So I think it's interesting that he kind of wrote Sincere and a lot of the other barbershop ones to kind of sound like this, where they're like already established um, songs, kind of so they sound more diegetic even. Um, And so then I guess he had to kind of write, pick a little, talk a little to kind of like mesh with Goodnight Ladies. We'll move on to uh, the 10th track. This is a song called Marion the Librarian, um, and Harold Hill and this song continues his attempts to rile up the town's only musical expert. Basically, she's kind of the biggest threat to uncovering him as a fraud, um, and uh, her name is Marion, which conveniently rhymes with librarian. Uh, so uh, this song uh, gives us an example of something that's called an ostinato. I think we may have talked about this before, actually, on the podcast, but an ostinato is a recurring baseline throughout a song, and Marion the Librarian has a really fun ostinato. Let me play that for you on the piano. Kind of a hypnotizing little bass line that Harold sings over uh, often with just a very long sustained note. Why don't we listen to a little bit of Marion the Librarian? Madam Librarian, what can I do, my dear, to catch your ear? I love you madly, madly, Madam Librarian, Marion. Heaven help us if the library caught on fire and the volunteer hose brigade men had to whisper the news to Marion. Oh, this is not my favorite song um, on the album. Uh, I feel like the the tune is a little less satisfying, maybe. Um, yeah, this is this is not my favorite, I guess. It's another it's another one of those very dance heavy songs. There's a there's a really long dance break in this. It's not it's not actually included in the cast recording, but if you look in the score, the the dance break is very very long. Uh yeah, I I'd, I'd agree with you. I don't think it's really a standout song uh in the score. But anyway, that brings us to uh the 11th track, which is called My White Knight. This is Marion's second big solo song. It's kind of like a, a second I want song for her. Uh, we've already heard it a little bit uh, and talked about its counterpoint with uh, Sadder But Wiser Girl. But why don't we just give a little bit of a listen to My White Knight. Lancelot, nor an angel with wings. 
Uh, so once again, uh, Marion gets one of the most Rogers and Hammerstein sounding songs in the show, uh, which I think is a little ironic since she seems to be stubbornly going against the old ways, and yet she's one of the ones with one of the most classical sounding songs. You kind of touched on that a little bit, Lid. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think makes this sound especially old-timey musical theater is there well a couple things uh first of all uh there are a lot of what i'll call crunch chords in this song i see this a lot in like rogers and hammerstein and in a lot of the old 50s and 60s musicals um so basically what i mean by crunch chord are there are a lot of chords in this song and in old theater songs that have a lot of uh, added notes that are really close to each other, uh, a lot of chromatic notes. So those are notes that are not in the key of the song. So if you're playing in C major, there might be like a G sharp or something like that. Um, so you see that a lot in uh, these uh, older style musicals. It gives it kind of a, a jumbled and kind of dreamy sound. I'm going to play the what's given in the score the piano vocal score as the piano accompaniment to this song and try to listen to sort of the crunch close sound of the chords that are being played So you got that crunch sound kind of chord. And then another thing that you see a lot in these older musicals is something called a major seventh chord. Uh, and that's just when you have, um, uh, uh, say, in if you're playing in C major, for example, you'd have like a C, an E, and a G. That's just a C chord. But then you'd also add the seventh note in the scale. So you'd play a B in addition to that. That's called a major seventh. And that's just, again, kind of a sort of a, a, a kind of a dreamy sound uh, that I think is really popular, was really popular in a lot of the uh, older uh, theater scores. Um, while playing through the score of The Music Man, I was very surprised to find My White Knight everywhere. It seems uh, to me that it is one of the lesser known songs in the score. Um, maybe that Maybe that's incorrect. That's kind of the how I felt about it. Uh, but it really is one of the most frequently used melodies throughout the show. I wanted to uh, play some examples for you. They, are, of course, aren't in the soundtrack, but they're in the score. So some examples of them uh, in uh, the score. Uh, it's used as underscore when uh, Marion is first spotted on stage and she's walking and Harold uh, kind of follows her. So here's what that sounds like on the piano. It is also the song that ends Act 1, and there's sort of this moment at the end of Act 1 where uh, Marion has this revelation that, you know, Harold is maybe not as bad of a guy as she thinks, and so here is how Act 1 ends.
then one more that I'll play is it also opens act two. so surprised to see it popping up all over the score. I just thought it was interesting since I don't think of it as one of the bigger uh, songs in the show. Yeah, you'd think it'd be something like 76 trombones or something like that would come up a lot. But that's yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of a recurring theme. That 76 trombones does pop up a lot also, but I feel like this is sort of the more I, I guess if there's anything a little more dramatic going on or like drama uh, if there's drama going on on stage this is the song that normally comes up and it's also very closely associated with uh marion i guess um I, it is it's also interesting because even though this song is used so frequently in the show they actually cut it out of the uh film the 1962 film and replaced it with a song with a song called "Being in Love." Did you notice that when you watched the film? Yeah. Yeah. Weird. And this is a song called "Wells Fargo Wagon." It is an ensemble song to end Act One. And in it, the people of River City eagerly await the arrival of the Wells Fargo Wagon, which is going to be bringing the uh, boys' band's instruments. I had always thought that this song was the Act 2 opener for some reason, Lid, until I started researching for the show. It kind of has a an Act 2 opener sound to it, but I think it does end the act well with the kids of the town receiving their band instruments and Marion having that realization that i mentioned before where she's uh, uh she's realizes that professor hill maybe is actually doing something good for the town and she dramatically rips a page out of the indiana state educational journal that she was planning to give to mayor shen to reveal that professor hill is a fraud and that's when we get that my white knight underscore that i played on the piano a moment ago so just a fun uh fun ensemble song uh what you got Lord? Yeah, I think it's a really fun, like, act one ender. Um, and I think it's funny because, like you said, in the first kind of town ensemble song, Iowa Stubborn, the, like, kind of big orchestral sound of it maybe is a little bit ironic. And I think the same here because it's literally just about, like, today it might be equivalent to, like, getting your Amazon package. And they're, like, I don't know, singing this huge big song about getting packages. Um, and it ends on this like huge high note. Um, so I, and I always like, I feel like whenever we watch this movie, like this is the song that would be kind of like stuck in our heads and we'd be like going around singing it. Um, so it's, it's a really catchy, fun song. And I think a great way to end act one. Uh, we can sort of add, uh, this song to our list maybe of, uh, I guess diegetic sounds, uh, that we're hearing. The score indicates that. This song should be played as a walking horse tempo. Uh, so sort of another reference to a diegetic sound. It's sort of almost like the rhythm of, of the wagon kind of trotting in. There is sort of another uh, ostinato here that I'll play on the piano. 
which is kind of the running uh, background to the melody of Wells Fargo Wagon. It's a lot of fun to play on the piano. <laughs> So that brings us to Act 2. There's only six tracks in Act 2, uh, and it starts off with the 13th track, which is another one of those uh, barbershop quartets. The song is called It's You. It's not actually the very beginning of Act 2. Uh, there really is no like very start of Act 2 opening number um, other than uh, Eulalie practicing her ballet, which does have some kind of pretty underscore to it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, another barbershop quartet. Don't really have anything to say about this one. You got anything, Lyd? I don't. All right, well, we'll go ahead and move on to the 14th track. And we've talked about it a little bit already, but the song is called Shapoopy. And <laughs> I did not... Uh, just uh, come up with that word on my own, but Meredith Wilson did. Uh, in the film, this song comes toward the end of the movie during the Flag Day celebration, I think it is. Uh, but in the musical, this comes at the beginning of Act 2 while they're in the gymnasium, uh, sort of like Eulalie is practicing her ballet, um, sort of comedically, and the school board sings It's You, and then uh, all these townspeople come in and kind of push Eulalie off the stage. And they sing this song called Shapoopy and do a big dance. And it is an ensemble song that's led by Marcellus, who is Harold Hill's friend and kind of his confidant in this whole uh, con man business. Um, and uh, so it's sort of Marcellus's uh, time to shine. I feel like it's interesting that Act 2 starts with It's You because Shapoopy sounds like, it's just like a classic like Act 2 opener. You're like, this doesn't really add anything to the story, but like it's here for the dance break and to like get you back into excited to see Act 2. Um, so it definitely makes sense uh, in the musical right at the beginning of Act 2. I heard you say before we started recording that you had a hot take on this song. What's your take on Shapoopy, Lid? Yeah, yeah, I have a hot take. Um, so I, in some of the reviews that I was reading about the Hugh Jackman, Sutton Foster uh, version of this uh, song, they've rewritten some of the lyrics. Um, so the lyrics originally were, the girl who's hard to get ending with, but you can win her yet. Um, and they rewrote the lyrics to be, uh, the boy who's seen the light and ending with, to treat a woman right. <laughs> um which, uh, yeah, kind of corrects some of maybe some outdated old uh, ideas that are in the song. Um, but my hot take about this is that um, another thing that I read, I think it was in the New York Times review, um, is that they also cut out a couple of the uh, book um, like script uh, that Meredith Wilson also wrote. Um, most notably uh, was when the mayor is talking to and now I forget his name, the the wild kid that goes around with his uh, oldest girl. Um, and he's talking to him, and I forget his name. Uh, but he's talking to him, and he's talking about Tommy how... Tommy Yeah, yeah. 
Tommy <laughs> Gillis. <laughs> yeah. Tommy Gillis. Yeah. He's talking about how he doesn't like Tommy Gillis and his dad lives on like the wrong side of the tracks or in like the poor side of town. Um, and this new, the new version of the musical cut that line out um, because I guess they thought it was too kind of controversial to be talking about someone like that or in that way. Um, which I think is super interesting. Um, I think both of these kind of rewrites to the musical are maybe examples of, I guess, like not being able to take things in context. Like in the story, the mayor is not really a positive character. I mean, Harold Hill is the villain of the story, we might say, but like, because we're on Harold Hill's side, because we see the story from his perspective, we kind of see the mayor as kind of the comedic villain of the story. So we're not really supposed to like him. So when he says something like that, you know, we're not like, oh, like, how could he say something like that? We 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 think negatively of his character because of the way that he views Tommy Gillis. So we're thinking about it in context. Um, and I think the same way about Shapoopy as well. Um, as we've been talking about, the musical style of the townspeople is very predictable. Um, the way that Marion looks at the townspeople is that they're uncultured, they're unread um they're outdated um so shapoopy i think you could take those old lyrics um as maybe you could view them in the way same way that marion does that oh my gosh these people are predictable and they're not cultured and they're not up to date on maybe better ways to view things um instead of like rewriting the lyric to i don't know be more like politically correct instead of like maybe trying to look at things in the context um, so I just thought, just in reading articles of the new show, um, and it's like the New York Times was, was, uh, not looking favorably on the changes either. Um, but yeah, that's my hot take. And I thought it was just like interesting changes that they made to the, to the revival on Broadway that's there now. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, to bring us back to the uh, music side, uh, <laughs> uh, th- thanks for another deep take on Thanks for another deep take on this uh, extremely deep episode of of Broadway overanalyzed. We're really we're overanalyzing everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, m- musically, not a very complicated song. There's a lot of just sort of sudden hitting of chords without really much melodic backing. There is a really fun sort of extended dance break. And why don't we just listen to that as we uh, close out our discussion on Shapoopy. In track 15, we get uh, a sort of combined song. Uh, We've actually already listened to it a little bit, but it is Light a Rose and Will I Ever Tell You. Uh, In this song, the school board is once again distracted from getting Harold Hill's credentials, and they sing another barbershop quartet song. It's called Light a Rose. Meanwhile, Marion is sort of, I guess, falling in love with Harold, and she sings Will I Ever Tell You. Get the sunlight in the sky. Dream of a love so that night has 
uh, Lida Rose, um, similar to what I was saying for Goodnight Ladies, um, and similar to Sincere, is kind of written to sound like it's kind of an already established barbershop, barbershop quartet song. Um, just feels kind of like old school Americana, I feel like I read um, somewhere. To me, it kind of sounds like songs that, like my granddad would like teach us in the car. Um, that's kind of like the vibe I get um like old school 50s songs um i really like this song i think it's it's really beautiful when marion's part comes in yeah it's another example of counterpoint if we haven't mentioned that already where you've got two melodies of the uh barbershop quartet and then marion's solo uh, singing one over the other wilson once again uh uses that oompa 4-4 beat uh with the bass with the accompaniment um, and then uh, both of the melodies, however, are very heavily swung. And so it gives it kind of that feel of like a, a lullaby kind of. It is, it is a really pretty song, I agree. In the uh, 16th track, we get a song called Gary, Indiana. Uh, this is a song sung by Winthrop, who is uh, the brother of Marion who uh, Professor Hill kind of helps uh, come out of his shell a little bit. And he teaches him this song called Gary, Indiana. Very simple song, very little accompaniment. It kind of makes sense for a, a little kid like Winthrop to be singing. I really didn't have anything to discuss about this song, Lid, unless you've got something to add. Yeah, it's a simple song. It, I feel like it doesn't do much kind of story-wise, move the story along, but it's kind of like gives us insight into maybe Winthrop's character. Um, one thing I do like about it is just the repetition of Gary, Indiana so many times. Um, but the, the as the words repeat, the tune kind of changes. And I think it's interesting, the emphasis on the first Gary, Indiana, the emphasis is on the Gary, the next is on the N-D, and then the last is on the Anna um kind of as it, as it repeats three times um so i think it's just really kind of satisfying to hear that in the 17th track uh we get a song called till there was you uh this is the love song of the show where marion and harold meet on the footbridge in river city and uh profess their love for each other let's listen to a little bit of till there was you And again, this song is uh, much more reminiscent of the uh, old school musical theater sound, uh, just very melodic. It's got kind of that Rodgers and Hammerstein vibe to it. A lot more of those crunch chords that we've already heard. The major sevenths are all over the place here. Uh, much less emphasis on any recurring accompaniment. There's no oompa, there's no ostinato. Uh, nothing really clever about it. It's just, uh, it's just a pretty song. Uh, and that's, that's one of the reasons I like this score. It's, I think it's a good balance between, 
uh, clever music and kind of like pretty music, um, which I think is sometimes hard to come by in musical theater, but it's, it's good to have that balance of the clever songs and the pretty songs. Yeah, I really love this song. I don't have too much to say about it musically, but I feel like it's just a great example of like, yeah, as we've said before, like classic golden age musical theater. I was like connecting it to Roger Hammerstein as well, just thinking about like, do I love you because you're beautiful or if I love you from Carousel? Um, it's it's very reminiscent of, of kind of Broadway love duets at the time um, that have really stood the test of time. And I mean, they're just gorgeous songs. So that brings us to the final track of the original Broadway cast recording of The Music Man. This is track number 18, and it is called The Finale. It's kind of interesting that the cast recording ends with this song called The Finale because it actually combines uh, two songs in the score that are separated by a good amount of time in the show. Uh, the first song is called uh, Good Night My Someone slash 76 Trombones. It's just really a, a reprise of uh, those two songs sung uh, alternating by Marion and Harold. Um, and then uh, in the original Broadway cast recording, that's followed by an ensemble reprise of 76 Trombones. Uh, that actually is nowhere in the score. In the score, there is no ensemble vocal reprise of 76 Trombones. There's an instrumental uh, reprise of it uh, at the very end, right after uh, the band plays their minuet in G and they go to the curtain call. Uh, but kind of interesting, they sort of added this little track on the Broadway cast recording to close out the show. Uh, even though it doesn't actually happen on stage. Yeah, it is kind of weird that there's, as I'm kind of looking about it, I'm looking back at the tracks, uh, that there's not that many, like, reprises in this. Like, usually in Act 2, you get, like, a couple reprises, and now you're, we're just kind of getting, like, reprises in the finale song, which is interesting. They they are there in the score. They just didn't include them in the cast recording. There's a, uh, there's a pick a little, talk a little reprise... There's a 76 trombones reprise. So they're in, they're in the score, but they're just for some reason not on the cast recording. Yeah. I think it is a pretty abrupt ending to the show. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Harold gets uh, captured by the townspeople after Charlie, the anvil salesman, reveals that he's actually a fraud. And then he. Uh, he play he he conducts the band as they play the minuet in G and it doesn't sound very good but the people of River City like it anyway because it's their children playing and they you know let Professor Hill out of his handcuffs and the show just like ends right there we don't really get much of a 
you know, explanation for what happens. Does he stay in River City with Marion? Uh, I think we can assume that he does, but it is pretty, pretty a quick ending to this show. Yeah, it's interesting there's no real, like, punishment for Harold Hill for completely, like, hoodwinking this entire town. Um, you kind of, like, I mean, maybe it's, like, Marion kind of, like, quickly switches to, to where she's on Harold's side, uh, like, kind of like the audience has to do at the end of the show as it ends. So it does, it does end quickly. I think it's kind of, like, I don't know, like, a feel-good movie where, like, you know, everything wraps up in a bow and maybe it's not realistic, but it does make you happy to watch it i think did you have something else to say yeah i was just gonna say i I know we talked about um kind of the the way that marion and harold kind of have this connection with goodnight my son in 76 trombones um but i think them kind of switching off and singing each other's parts at the end too is interesting um and i know we noted before and kind of heard meredith wilson say that there's kind of like this deeper connection that they're kind of we know that they're going to end up together because throughout the show, they're kind of singing the same tune in different ways. Um, and then when we come to the end, they kind of switch and Marion sings Harold's version and Harold, which that's not actually his name, which we should have said his name is not actually even Harold Hill. Um, but anyway, um, and Harold sings uh, Marion's. Um, and so I feel like that kind of shows what they've kind of learned from each other and what they they give to each other. Marion kind of brings out the softer side of Harold and Harold kind of brings Marion a little bit down to earth. Um, so I, I do think even though it's abrupt, it's a nice way to end the show. Um, it feels like it kind of comes full circle. And speaking of coming full circle, we have come to the end of episode six of uh, Broadway Overanalyzed. Uh, wow, uh, I think this went well, Lyd. Uh, before we close out here, why don't you tell me what is your favorite song in the score? What is your least favorite song in the score? Oh, that's a tough one. Again, not prepared for this question. Um, I'd say my least favorite is maybe Shapoopy. <laughs> because I don't enjoy saying it either. I feel like it's just a classic act two dance number that I don't really listen to in my free time. Um, I think my favorite might be Till There Was You. I feel like it's just a classic. Um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't really get old for, for not really any reason because it's maybe it's a simplistic song, but it's just so pretty. Uh, it's yeah, just satisfying to listen to. What are, what's yours? Uh, I, th- I think You Got Trouble is pretty hard to beat. I think it's kind of the the classic song from this soundtrack i think that'd probably have to be my favorite uh i i really like the barbershop quartet i i could listen to any of those songs any day um least favorite um i don't i'll i really don't have one on this track that i like really dislike uh i've never been a huge fan uh, believe it or not of 76 trombones uh I, we were talking about this a little bit off of the recording lid, but I don't know. It's never really, never really gotten me. And interest, interestingly enough, though, I I do really like "Goodnight My Someone." So <laughs> weird. <laughs> You're more of a Marion than a Harold. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about rating the score? Scale of one to ten. Where do you put the Music Man? 
I think, and I think I've said this before, after kind of doing the research and talking through the podcast, I always just appreciate the musical so much more. Um, I think this one also has some, like, nostalgic uh, feelings for me, which just kind of, like, growing up with the the movie. Um, so I think I'd maybe have to give it, like, a 7, 7.5 or an 8. Um, 7.75, maybe. Yeah. What's your score? Yeah, I think this is a good one. This is probably my favorite soundtrack we've done in a while i uh um i think i'd probably give it uh an 8.5 and i really need to go back and and look at i'd like to like put together a chart of how (laughs) how we've rated the other ones in past episodes just so i can make sure i'm uh rating them correctly relative to the other scores we've done but 8.5 8.5 sounds pretty good Well, that is it for episode six of Broadway Overanalyzed. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to this one. Music in this episode is from the original Broadway cast recording of The Music Man, the 1962 film soundtrack of The Music Man, and the 2003 TV film version of The Music Man. Uh, Do you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for us? Uh, We'd love to hear what uh, other shows you'd like to hear us review. Uh, send us an email at bewayoveranalyzed at gmail.com and check out my YouTube channel, which is just called Sam Riddle. Thanks for listening, and we hope that you will tune in again very soon. Everything takes a